we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 116 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 3rd of October, 2017, and with me in person at podcast headquarters, the 12th man himself, Paul, welcome back. Well, Iron Fist, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. So, Paul and I have had a lovely dinner and a few red wines, and we're now having a cleansing ale, so... We've we've already fired off a lot of stuff already over the dinner table, Paul, but there's lots to talk about. Oh, we have plenty left, Trevor, I'm sure. We do. So, uh, Paul, first off, uh, late development in world news mm. is the recent shooting in Las Vegas. Yeah. At last count, 59 dead, over 400 injured, and a society that's completely dysfunctional because despite all of this happening, there will be no changes. It's just going to be business as usual yeah. in the US of A when it comes to gun laws. Yeah. Look, it's tragic. And um, uh, do you know what? The, probably the most, um, what would you say, prescient thing I saw uh, with regard to that horrible event that I've seen in the, in the media was The Onion. Have you seen the onions take on that? No. It was it was interesting because the onion, um, they basically uh, they 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 wrote an article that was basically like uh, faux serious, but it's it basically was like uh, I wish I, just give me a moment, see if I can f- bring it up. Trevor. Right. But it was basically saying there's been another massacre and when they ask people for their comments they're like, well there's really nothing we can do about it. And then they repeat it but it's in a different location in the USA. Right. Exactly the same report, exactly the same comments and then they repeat it. in a, So they, they did it like five or six times in different parts of America yeah. Yeah. with exactly the same response Oh yeah, it's all very terrible, but there's nothing we can do about it. And and this is, seems to be the 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 illness that America has is that they've they've got the most technologically advanced society in the world, but they've got this kind of caveman ethic, or maybe it's the Wild West ethic, where everybody has a right to defend themselves with deadly weapons. And when somebody goes crazy and murders 50 or 60 people, well, gee, we just have to live with it because there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. Put your headphones on. And this was The Onion's take on it. Mm. I thought it was really quite perceptive. Do you know, it's like we're talking within 24 hours of the event happening. Mm. That is not the latest mass shooting in America. Like a mass shooting is considered three or more people. Yeah, and they happen well, almost daily. Within half an hour of that event, five people were shot in some other event yeah. soon afterwards in, a, in another town, another city. Uh, it's amazing. Dear listener, just to get a feel for 
what it must have been like in the crowd. Um, have a listen to this. Rapidity of fire in that is frightening, Paul. It's absolutely terrifying. It's it's like a war, isn't it? It's, it's it really is. It's what you'd expect if you were in Afghanistan firing on some. Yeah. And as we discussed earlier, the man was found with seventeen weapons, and sixteen of them were rifles in his ho- in the hotel room. Sixteen rifles. And they were likely, most of them or many of them, military assault rifles mm. with high-capacity magazines, high-impact ammunition. He went up there with, obviously, the intent to kill as many people in as barbarous a way as he possibly could. Now, why, is, why can that happen? It's, it's completely dysfunctional. That society, they've, they've just lost control of their society, haven't they? So, you know, thinking about Australia, um, you know, I've, uh, John Howard did a lot of things wrong and he continues to do a lot of things wrong by interfering in the current discourse over marriage equality. But when the Port Arthur shooting happened and he straight away got onto it and made those changes to the gun laws, that was kind of an example of the shock doctrine in reverse because uh, Naomi Klein with the shock doctrine talks about countries where natural disasters happen, whether they be tsunamis or, or other events, and, and big corporations move in and basically take the land and put up hotels before the villagers can move back in, or mm. other laws are passed when you know, a military junta has taken control or something like that, where the, where the, uh, the right-wing moneyed class comes in and does things in that moment of shock before people can recover. And I think actually John Howard used inadvertently the shock doctrine in reverse. In reverse Australia was so shocked by that event that, that he was able to do it. In, in a short amount of time afterwards, a quick decision could actually do it. And to his credit, he was at rallies and things where there were, um, you know, advocates of... of guns um, who were complaining against him and he stood up to them. So it is the one thing that John Howard did that uh, needs to be continually applauded. That we, But, you know, it's also a cultural Agreed. thing. I think we were talking earlier that I believe that gun ownership in Canada is not that dissimilar to the United States mm. and they don't seem to have nearly the number of problems, but perhaps they don't have the automatic weapons problems that the US has. Um do you think the American uh, political leaders are also deeply in denial about the whole issue? I mean, they publicly say, well, no, we can't interfere with the right to bear arms. Look, another thing I ca- that came up on The Onion today, it's a picture of Paul Ryan, who I think is the speaker, isn't he, the House Speaker in the US? 
I lose track of he's a he's a conservative and I think he was one of the people who would have liked to have been a candidate for president anyway he didn't make it but he's a deeply conservative I believe he's a, a publicly a Christian but the onion has a picture of Paul Ryan and the headline is this shooting isn't about gun control we refuse to pass it's about access to mental health care we're continuing to gut well, that's true. Yeah, that's well. See, the the people who write the Onion are actually very perceptive, mm. even though it's a parody magazine. It could be part of it. It could be. It's it's hard to say. It's 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 all sorts of things adding up. But um, Paul, right as we speak, like as this event happens, I've been listening to a new podcast which I quite like. I've just only just found it called The Majority Report by Sam Sader, S-E-D-E-R. So, dear listener, I recommend that one to you if you're interested in what's happening in America. And um, so a bit of what I'm going to say comes from that. And right at this moment, the, uh, the Congress, I guess, is supposed to be examining a bill which is going to allow silences to be reintroduced so these have been outlawed and it's going to allow silences without a background check so anybody will be able to buy a silencer that's that's a law that's currently facing why, why on earth i mean they they defend the right to bear arms because they say people have a right to defend themselves why on earth does anyone need a silencer to, to defend themselves well what they're saying is that their argument is that the, that the sound of the gunfire, of the gun going off, is actually hurting the ears of shooters. So it's, oh. it's, it's as a method of, oh of workplace health and safety, if you like. Oh, wow. So, wow, that is the most twisted logic I've heard in a while. But that is the argument. Is it's, so, well, Paul, the name of the bill, yeah. this law is being come, coming through, is called... The Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act. Enhancement? Yes. Oh, my God. That's the name of the bill. So it's so bizarre. So this guy from the Majority Port, Sam Sader, makes the point that uh, what has happened is uh, when Obama came into power, the uh, gun retailers could say to their potential customers, uh, Obama's going to ban weapons you better buy as many as you yeah. can and um people did yeah now that trump is in power people are going well you know guns aren't going to be banned while ever trump's in power so the retailers are going well all our customers are loaded up with stock how are we going to sell them stuff and the answer is accessories <laughs> so a silencer being an accessory of course is what you do in order to maintain sales in a difficult, difficult sales environment. You know, since the massacre yesterday, mm-hmm. the share price for arms manufacture for gun manufacturers has gone up. Oh, nothing's nothing surprises me. But you know, a silencer, Paul. Could you imagine that scenario at Las Vegas if the guy had a silencer? Yeah. They wouldn't know. The music is playing. It would be just the thud of bullets hitting human bodies. That's right. And given the sound, you know, of the music that's happening, 
you would people could be dying within ten feet of you, and you'd have no idea. It could have been that there's a massacre going on. Several times as many fatalities. Exactly. That guy with a silencer would have been so much more dangerous. And what was happening when you listen to other snippets of video and things is, you know, when he was reloading and there was silence, people would move and try and find cover. And when he was shooting, they would then, you know, drop to the ground. Mm. At least they had some indication that he was firing. Exactly. And there's all sorts of other instances of, um, you know, um, gunmen in schools, for example, where gunmen have been walking down hallways in the classroom shooting people. People can hear the gun... At least you could hear them coming. ...in another classroom and jump out the window, take cover, lock the door, do whatever. Mm. But somebody armed with a silencer is an unbelievably dangerous... This is... The sort of thing that you only expect criminals to want to have. Exactly. Isn't it? You would think so. So that's part of the legislation that the gun lobby has currently got before Congress. And, of course, what will happen is that'll just be put on the back burner. And maybe, you know, when things quieten down in three, six months' time, they'll try and push that through. Push it through. Yeah. It's insane, isn't it? It's really insane. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's the Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act. And I've got a link to an article by Guy Dana Milbank writing in the Washington Post. Um, so, amongst the recreational enhancements, here are some of the things of this legislation, Paul. Um, Allowing people to bring assault guns and other weapons through jurisdictions where they are banned. So what they're saying is if it's legal to have a type of gun in one state, you should be able to travel with that gun through a state where it is banned. That's part of the legislation they're trying to get through. So Um, much for state laws. Yep. Rolling back, as I said, the um, decades-old restrictions on the use of silencers. Um, protecting the use of armour-piercing bullets. No. Yep. Are, are they? Can people already purchase armour-piercing bullets in, in the United States? I believe they can. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know, but I'm pretty sure they would not be legal in Australia, would they? At, at the moment, I have no idea. I can't imagine it's legal in Australia. But in the states, at the moment, um, the government has the authority to classify bullets as armour-piercing ammunition. And part of this legislation is to stop the government from being able to classify a bullet as armour-piercing. Um, that's part of what they're doing. They're easing the importation of foreign-made assault rifles mm. and um, various other things here. The, the listener may or may not be aware that in Australia it's, it's not legal to purchase bulletproof vests. Right. It's not even legal to purchase uh, stab-proof vests in Australia. Did you know that? No, I wasn't aware. I, I was alerted to oh. this by a, um, a person with whom I had a, a, a conversation online. And he was a... Um, he, he actually told me later he was a member of the um, Liberal Democrats in Australia. Right. And they're a little bit pro-gun, as you yes. know. Now he he was um, he was sounding me out because he he was basically saying well what's the secular party's 
view or policy on, on gun ownership. And I was basically saying, well, uh, the status quo, we're happy with it because we don't want any more guns in the community than uh, what we already have. Yep. And he was saying, well, what about, you know, surely people should be able to buy bulletproof vests. And I was like, <laughs> why would you need a bulletproof vest unless you were planning to go out and get in a gun gunfight with someone? And he said, well, you know, you, you have a right to protect yourself. And then, as, as far as I know, Paul, if you go out shooting kangaroos, usually they don't shoot back. They don't shoot back, and nor mm. do they stab you. Mm. So he also thought it w- was quite reasonable to, to expect to be able to buy a stab-proof vest <laughs> so that just in case someone, you know, jumped on you with a knife walking down the street, you'd have some protection. Who was this guy? Ah, oh, he was a he was a he was a university student actually. Were you at some national party conference or something? Were you? No, right. No, this was online. But anyway, right. as I said, he um, he admitted later in the conversation that he was actually a member of the Liberal Democrats, mm. and that's they a, have a much more liberal policy on gun ownership. That's a David Lionhelm or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, this article that I just spoke about before. I'll just read an extract of it. The uninformed might, oh, the uninformed might suspect that silences are used by people who want to fire weapons without being caught by cops or observed by witnesses. Wouldn't you think? But more and more hunters are finding that conventional earplugs and muffs are not adequate for today's weapons. Oh, for example, when quail hunting with an M triple seven howitzer, or grouse hunting with an FIM ninety two Stinger missile launcher. What? You know, I mean, that is when you need a, you know, appropriate ear protection. Quail with a stinger. <laughs> this is his point. He's being sarcastic. You know, if you're just shooting some animals, you'll be perfectly fine with a pair of earmuffs, is what he's saying. What do you think? Yeah. Um, he goes on here. Um, sportsmen are further protected by a destruction of records provision requiring the government to delete silence a sale and transfer information. What? Can you believe that? That's part of this legislation that the government's required to destroy records about who just bought a silencer. That's unbelievable. That's like, I don't know, that's like, um, you know, minority report level, isn't it? Fantasy. You think it was The Onion. The Onion, exactly. It sounds like it's straight out of The Onion. Yeah. He's, again, sarcastically, Paul, says... For obvious reasons, law-abiding hunters would not want silencer purchases to be logged. Such a paper trail would be an obvious tip-off to game animals, particularly those such as <laughs> the white-tailed deer with access to national firearms registration and transfer yeah, records. And most of them would have it these days. Deer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's a wonderful country, the United States. And yeah. I love my American friends. And they—it's—they uh, have a bizarre I, society. You know, get your average American on their own over a beer or whatever. Great people. Meet people in the national parks. Fantastic people. Get a collection of them together to make some laws. Holy smokes! What a disaster. Um, so that's that. Um, one other issue from that. Um, I saw this interview with a guy. Who um, who managed to survive? Um, you need to put your headphones back on, twelfth man. Um, 
So interview with a guy who was in the crowd at the concert, and uh, this is what he had to say. You can't really, you just got to take it to God at that point and, you know, hope that you can make it and hope that you're, you're safe. And I know I can't speak for everyone, but for me, I'm just, you know, I'm, I was agnostic going into that concert, and I'm a firm believer in God now because there's no way that, you know, all that happened and that I made it and I was blessed enough to, to still be here alive talking to you today. Comments, 12th man? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> I'm totally lost for words. When I hear people spout such moronic nonsense because they haven't, you know, what they see is a near-death experience, so they think the only reason they survived was because they, suddenly there must be a God protecting them. This is... Just utter nonsense, isn't it? This is superstition. This is magical thinking. But it's so narcissistic and selfish. Very narcissistic. Because you were spared. Yeah, 50 other there is a God. people got allowed to die, Yes, but God saved you. It's yes. very narcissistic, it's, very self-centred, isn't it? It's incredibly self-centred and narcissistic. And I don't care that you've just had a near-death experience. I, I, I don't care. I, I grant you no slack for that. Mm. Um, you know, have you heard of a movie, Twelfth uh, Man? I'm just going to try and find the clip from it here, if I can. And um, uh, let me just see if I get it here. Oh. What makes him think? No, that's not what I'm after. A movie about lies where there's this society where nobody lies but there's this guy with his mother and she's on her deathbed and uh, to comfort her he says oh it's okay you're going to go to this paradise all of your uh, deceased relatives will be there you know it's all going to be great and you'll, you'll it'll all be okay and he she knows it's not true he knows it's not true and but it's a society where nobody lies. Anyway, the mother survives, and he becomes this like prophet-like character who's telling people. And people then go, well, gee, nobody lies. Everything this guy's saying is true. Tell us more about this experience. And, um... Ah, oh, 12th Man, my little, um... My little program that I normally use for these clips is just causing me trouble on this particular thing, and... Okay, so 12th Man, I'm ready to go, and here's a clip from The Invention of Lying with Ricky Gervais. Okay, number nine. The man in the sky who controls everything decides if you go to the good place or the bad place. He also decides who lives and who dies. Does he cause natural disasters? Yes. Did he cause my mom to get cancer? Yes. Did he cause that tree to land on my car last week? Yeah. Did he kill my dad with that heart attack? Yeah. I say fuck the man that lives in the sky. Yeah, that guy's evil. That guy's a coward hiding up there doing bad things to us. Why doesn't he do it to our faces? We have to stop that evil bastard before he kills us all. Wait, wait, listen. The man who lives in the sky and controls everything is also responsible for all the good stuff that happens. 
He's the guy that saved my life on that fishing trip when the boat capsized? Yes. Did he capsize the boat? Yeah. He killed my grandmother and left me those millions of dollars? You bet, yes. So he's the one who cured my mom's cancer? Yeah. So he's, he's kind of a good guy, but he's also kind of a prick, too. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, I think our survivor from the shooting in Las Vegas needs to see that movie, Twelfth Moon. Yeah, well, I don't know what to say to that survivor, but he needs to study a little bit of uh, human history and anthropology. Well, a, a madman has just gunned down 58 people and injured over 400, and you're now convinced that there is a god? Suddenly. Yeah. Dear, oh dear. Yeah. Right, new topic, Twelfth Man. Mm-hmm. Um, religious freedom. And, um, you know, we're going to get a lot of academics from um, religious freedom think tanks mm. who are coming out and trying to scare people and say, well, problem with this marriage equality, it's, it's going to be... You know, uh, damaging to religious freedom, yeah. causing all sorts of problems, and we better not let it happen. And I had the misfortune on Facebook to come across a uh, an interview with a guy, Ian Benson, who's a professor of law at a Notre Dame University in New South Wales, Catholic University, dear listener. Sounds like it. Yeah. So, uh, and... He's also part of a think tank um, called... Uh, oh, what's it called? I think you should start your own think tank, Trevor. I think... I because think, just about anyone has a think tank these days. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, as a slight to you yep. in any sense. But yep. I, I like to think of this podcast as a bit of a think tank. I, I see it that way too. That's good, yep. So... Um, so anyway, he has he was interviewed by um, I've actually skipped ahead of where I meant to be, but I'll, I'll shoot to where it is. So he's part of Freedom for Faith, which is a think tank, yeah. and I'm going to play a bit of um, this clip that he's on, yeah. and we can talk about it. So yeah. here's part one of what he has to say. Speculate about the possible risks that this legislation could face to religious freedom, what's the answer? Well, I don't think we have to speculate. I think all we need to do is look at the record in the various countries where same-sex marriage has been brought in. Tell me what did happen in Canada. Well, the most startling example there is is currently ongoing. Uh, The Supreme Court of Canada is about to hear a case involving a challenge to the accreditation of of a Uh, evangelical law school. So what's going on is a very serious debate right at the heart of law about whether diversity will allow different views on marriage. And in Australia, you're going to have to be absolutely aware that your laws have to be crystal clear to protect freedom of conscience and diversity. Are you familiar with the Canadian case that he's referring to? I'm actually not. Right. But I... What on earth is an evangelical law school? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. In Canada, there is an evangelical law school. Um, And uh, let me just see if I can get the name of it here. Um, It's a faith-based school in Langley in British Columbia. 
and the Canadian High Court is about to hear two appeals concerning this law school known as Trinity Western University. Um, the dispute stems from the university's controversial community covenant, which bans sexual intimacy outside of heterosexual marriage. All students at the university must sign the covenant. Uh, the Law Societies argued that the Covenant discriminates against people in the LGBTQ community who want to enter the legal profession because they can't get married. So what it's saying is... And all they don't recognise a marriage of that sort. So, um, so basically, the legal community is saying your law school is discriminating against gay people yeah. by requiring them to sign this Covenant... And therefore, we are not going to recognise your graduates mm. who come out of your law school. Yeah. So you can, by all means, teach them the law yeah. and give them your have own any degree. Legally recognised qualifications. They won't be able to walk into our court and stand before a judge because he'll say you're not admitted. What do you think of that, twelve men? What do I think of that? Yeah, that's. Uh, that's a curly one, isn't it? Because I'm the person that we that you battled with over the right of private businesses yes. to discriminate. Yes. Um, that's a good one. I mm. hadn't thought of it, to be honest. Um, yeah. I find it quite laughable, the idea of a uh, evangelical law school, I have to say. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're training people to practice law, the law should be religion neutral, surely, shouldn't it? Should be. Should be. So if you're training well, should, people well, to practice law... Well, religion should have no effect on how the law operates. Why, why would you be able to dictate their sexual orientation before they're admitted to the law school? I don't know. I find that a bit of an anachronism. See, I just go back to the... Fundamental principles that I've been establishing over the last few weeks, 12th man, which is we as a society can mm. say to businesses, religious or not, if you want to practice and intersect with our community, yeah. then we require you to follow workplace health and safety laws, uh, mm. anti-discrimination laws, mm. um, you want to put a big cross on your building, you're going to have to use yeah. a crane, um, blah, blah, blah. And we can say to a law school... You have to allow every student in, who whether they're gay or not. And what about Bible college? Do you think they have to admit anybody to a Bible college? Well, it doesn't intersect with the community because we don't care. They don't need a, a you know, you, you get your Bible degree. Good luck to you. you it's worth nothing anyway. But you see, these people are taking their degree. See, when you get a law degree from a university. You then have to go to the Supreme Court and get admitted mm. as a solicitor. Yep, yep. So that's and the that's step. a public institution. So yep. for me, that's a different case to the the cake shop, right, or whatever. Quite a different case to me. The cake shop, yep. uh, where they make you know um, custom ordered cakes, I think that's c quite different. We'll get onto cakes. Yes, yeah, quite different on. to a an, an institution that trains people to practice law 
in mm. public institutions. I think mm. that's a different case. Okay, so there you go. Anyway, that's... So I'm on your side with that one. Okay, so that's um, Professor Ian Benson on that issue. A bit more of him now. So again, headphones back on, 12th man. Yeah. Swing that around. Yeah. Okay, it's all good. So how would that relate to the situation in Australia? Well, the Australian provisions that I've seen put forward are even weaker than the Canadian ones. So what's happening here is that Australia is proceeding as if there aren't going to be these attacks and challenges on religious people or those who have a conscientious objection to same-sex marriage. And that's a, a tremendously naive approach, given what we've seen in England or in South Africa or in Canada. Australia, everybody agrees that religious ministers should be protected in deciding who they want to marry. Isn't that the issue? No, there's, there's a lot more issues than simply who marries and whether you refuse to marry. For example, is your charitable status going to be threatened because you advocate traditional marriage? Or is your school going to be threatened because its curriculum uh, wishes to portray marriage as, as heterosexual? And no one seems to understand. Uh, that this limiting it simply to clergy exemptions is, is woefully inadequate to protect religious liberty and conscience liberty in an open society such as Australia. Mm. So what this guy's worried about is tax and school curriculums. He's trying to get guarantees on other issues that don't exist at the moment but just have them entrenched. unrelated to marriage equality. Yes, yep. So he's just, you know, he's claiming a slippery slope to other dangers, mm. but what he's trying to do is put in a, a you know, a, a ratchet, if you like, or, you know, extra benefits that aren't even there at the moment mm. under the guise of protecting, but he's actually looking for increased things that they don't already have. Yeah. As a professor of law, this is the thing that shits me about this sort of stuff is... Is that why you left the legal profession? No, you didn't have to deal with these sorts of guys. It's only in, you know, secular podcasts that you have to deal with that. But, you know, when you watch him on the video, it's, you know, professor at law at Notre Dame University. People go, oh, gee, law professor? We'll get on to Notre Dame University in a moment, but it's so disingenuous, the whole thing. Uh, Here's a bit more from this character. Isn't what you're asking for basically a licence to be a bigot? No, you see, this term bigot has to be very carefully understood. The fact that two people disagree about something that is where they have a moral disagreement does not make one of them into a bigot. Because I can disagree with you about marriage and still respect you. It doesn't turn me into a bigot. And it's not unjust to have uh, different conceptions of marriage coexisting at the same time and to protect the traditional one. So it sounds like no matter what side of the debate you're on, Diversity of opinion is a really important thing to protect. That's correct. In any free and open society, it's extremely important on matters particularly as heated as same-sex marriage to ensure that both sides have their viewpoints protected. Here, what you're disagreeing with is is the moral nature of marriage and the moral nature of sexuality. And those are things about which reasonable people are entitled to disagree. And that disagreement needs to be protected and kept open in a free society. Twelfth man, two key ideas, bigotry and diversity of opinion. Mm. I actually find myself agreeing with him on that. I get really tired Mm. of people overusing the word bigot and bigotry 
to label anybody that disagrees with them. I, mm. I get so tired of hearing the word racist, homophobe, Islamophobe, all these, these smear words that are used against people who disagree. Mm. And on that point, I'm with him. We, huh. we can put that word aside yes. and just have a discussion. We don't have to agree. I agree, I agree with the sentiment there as well. But, dear listener... This guy, Ian Benson, has got a history. And as part of my Googling around, and, you know, we had a public holiday and my wife's gone away for a while, so I've had a bit of spare time. <laughs> That's why this podcast is probably going to go for three hours. Too much time. On rather, rather than the normal one. But anyway, came across um, a blog by Michael Barnett called Mikey Bear. And Michael's going to probably come on the podcast in about three or four weeks' time when he gets back from something else that he's doing. Anyway, there was a situation, um, 12th Man, where there was a guy called Mark Allaby who was a board member of the Australian Christian Lobby. And at the same time, he was quite high up at IBM Australia. And IBM Australia promoted itself as being an employer of choice for the LGBTQ community. So Michael Barnett and various others raised the issue to IBM. Hey, you claim to be an employer of choice for this group, yet you've got a guy who's a board member of the ACL. Please explain. I think that's fair enough. They weren't calling for him to be sacked. They were just saying to IBM, well, if you want to advertise yourself as being a uh, paragon of virtue in this sphere, then why is this guy working for you at this high level? And anyway... But why shouldn't he? Look, he can, yeah. but why should IBM be able to say that they are... Um, LGBTI friendly. Exactly. Surely they can embrace... All parts of the spectrum. Well, that's up to them to explain. So, sure, this guy could work for IBM, mm. but activists could say to IBM, well, if you want to claim, you know, this sort of characterisation of your organisation, mm. please explain to us why you've got this guy who seems to be... who's from an organisation that's clearly not LGBTQ-friendly yeah. so high up. So... They weren't calling for his resignation. They're simply saying to IBM, please explain to us what's going on here. But should they have to explain or justify for every person according to their their moral architecture? Okay. At the end of the day, IBM could say, we don't have to explain. Hmm. At which point, the LGBTQ community could go, well, your claims of super-friendliness for our community, we don't accept. Or we have reservations about. So, you know, nobody's forced to answer, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so in relation to that brouhaha, this is what Professor Ian Benson had to say on um, the Religion and Ethics Report. Yeah, I mean, is this man being hounded? Well, well, there's a technical term for this. Um, We can look it up if we're not familiar with it. It's called witch hunt. It's an anti-religious bigotry. It's now becoming more and more prevalent in Australia, I'm sad to say. I've already seen it in both South Africa and in Canada. 
and it has to be resisted. So on the one hand, he complains about the use of the word bigotry. Yeah, but now he uses it for but the people that he doesn't like. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Double standards there. It is a double standard. I and, uh, and also, uh, I think we're up to uh, one final clip from this guy. Uh, I'll play this one. Headphones back on. And in Australia, you're going to be up, have to be absolutely aware that your laws have to be crystal clear to protect freedom of conscience and diversity. Yeah, so, well, that's it, reasonable. It's diversity. Note the use of that word. It's a slippery word, isn't it? Uh, I hate it, to be honest, Trevor. Yes. I hate the word diversity because what does it really mean? Well, indeed. Well, what did Ian Benson say about the word diversity in the same interview with... Um, the Religion and Ethics Report. The argument is being leveled using terms that are very slippery. Marriage equality, diversity, inclusion. And yet all three of these things are being used in a very interesting way. So again, on the one hand, he's happy to use diversity. Yet on the other hand, in a different interview, he admits that diversity is a very slippery word. Yeah. So he wants diversity when it includes people like him. Yeah. When it's about people who are perhaps opposed to his view, diversity takes on a sinister um, sort of tone, doesn't it? They're such slippery characters, yeah. and you've just got to know people's backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so he's from Notre Dame. He's part of the think tank Freedom for Faith, mm. and I hate that word too, faith. It's a terrible. It's a terrible word. I mean, it's. It's superstition. They're talking about superstition and they, uh, what's the word? They make it sound respectable with this word faith because faith has, of course, a very positive ring to it. You know, so if you have faith, it somehow must be something good and yet it's just pure superstition is what it is. Yeah, it's a despicable practice, faith. It's and, ridiculous. It's and, believing something without any good reason to. Yeah. So I've got a few links to um, bits and pieces about him that people can read if they want. University of Notre Dame, um, 12th man, Australia's private Catholic university established in 1989 with campuses in Fremantle and satellite campuses in Broome and what? Sydney. So... This is Fremantle and yeah, Broome. Yes, and uh, you know, so when somebody says they're a professor of law at Notre Dame University, you go, "Well, that sounds legit." But if you know what this university is about, its motto in English is "In the beginning was the word," and it's um, uh. Let me just see here. It's the academy ain't what it used to be, Trevor. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, I mean, people get PhDs in diversity studies now. Yeah. You know, the university crest is an open Bible. The objects of the university. The first object is the provision of university education within the context of Catholic faith and values. As of 2017, the university is ranked equal 29th in the Australian university rankings, mm. tied with six other universities. This, I'm pleased to say, Paul, is the bottom position in the rankings. Hardly a surprise, is it? Good to know. Yeah. 
Look, I, you know, I, I have to say that when I was at university, I had reason to visit uh, the Catholic University here in Brisbane. Mm. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, they were very um, accommodating. And the library, I found some interesting material in the library. And what I discovered was that the Catholic Church actually has quite a, a long tradition of, um, of study. I, I, I wouldn't say it's all, all study that was worth doing. Mm. But they have you know, quite an academic uh, tradition in the Catholic Church, whereas the Protestant churches tend to have this really shallow sort of um, focus on, on belief mm. rather than exploring ideas, if you know what I mean. Whereas mm. the Catholics, at least to their credit, do explore ideas, even though they do it somewhat with blinkers on, somewhat with the, mm. the, the Christian blinkers on. But at least they, they're willing to sort of explore ideas in, on a slightly more sophisticated level, unlike the Protestants who are just totally <laughs> superficial and shallow as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that unfair? Oh, no. Uh, hey, I'm the guy who coined a scrotum of religious nutters, so I'm hardly likely to say it's unfair. <laughs> Uh, 12th man, 2016 Natu National Church Life Survey Ooh, has come out. Church Life. Mm. So I would never put those words together myself. Well, they they you know, uh, they interviewed um, 1,200 ordinary Australians, and oh yeah, uh, that serious, was interesting, wasn't very it? Very serious, in interesting questions mm. here. Um, uh, Australians were asked. Is religion good for society? 11% yes. strongly agree, 9% agree. 40% yes. neutral, 12 disagree, and 9 strongly disagree. So we've only got 20% who are actually agreeing that religion is good for society yes, or actually that, on the positive side. Oh, it was actually, well, strongly agree 11%. And agree, twenty-eight percent. Oh, I looked at the wrong way around, have I? Yeah. Sorry. So it's thirty-nine percent. Thank you for that, because I've got a black and white copy, and it oh, was okay. a little yeah, bit. I can oh, see the colour on. Thank you for that. So, so it's thirty-nine percent either strongly agree or agree. Right. And uh, disagree or strongly disagree was twelve and forty, so fifty-two. Right. So, so it's still more. Yeah. Disagree than agree. Yep, looking at the little other chart I can see here. Yeah. So, yeah, four out of ten are positive, but the rest are not. Yeah. So, yeah. 39 to 52. Yeah. The importance of religion slash spirituality. This is where I have a problem, 12th man. This, this word spirituality... It's another word I never use. ...is being included in these surveys... And spirituality and religion are two very different things, and... Uh, People can claim to be spiritual and be something very different from religious and to sort of conflate the two together. Except for dangerous. you and me. Yes. Fist. Yes. Except for you and me. Yes. Who isn't spiritual these days? <laughs> well, let's find out. Uh, how important is religious faith or spirituality in shaping life decisions? And basically only roughly four out of ten say that it is important. Yeah. And the rest are either neutral or not important. 
So this is important in shaping life decisions. Yeah. Right? Yep. Okay. Very important or important was thirty nine percent. Yep. And of little importance or not important. Yep. Was sixty. Sixty one. Sixty one percent. Well, that's quite a difference. Isn't yeah. It? So most people, religion slash spirituality. Not important in shaping life decisions. Mm. Mm. Next one. Have you ever had a mystical or supernatural experience about which you have no doubt it was real? And in terms of positive, it looks like just under 30%. Yes, 28% said, yes, I have. And no, but I know someone who has was another 9%. Yeah. That's a that's a bit wishy washy. That is, yeah. yeah. So that doesn't count. I, I wouldn't count it. The other ones were no, but I believe it could happen. No, and I don't think such experiences occur. And unsure. So so less than thirty percent were saying yes, I have. Mm. Mm. Uh, Australians were asked which of these comes closest to your belief. There is a personal God. There is some sort of spirit or life force. I don't know what to think. I don't think there is any spirit, God, or life force. This answers the question that you were asking only a minute ago, 12th man. Does it? Okay. There is a personal God, 24%. Yep. There is some sort of spirit or life force, Mm. 35%. Mm. I don't know what to think, 19%. And I don't think there is any spirit, God, or life force, 21%. So people are more spiritual that's 35%, then they are godly, yeah. sort of God-believing. I've often been perplexed by people who are otherwise relatively intelligent mm-hmm. who assure me that there must be something. There must be something out there. Mm. What do you say to people who tell you that? I don't know. No, I'm really uninterested in the whole street epistemology, trying to convince people to be atheists. It doesn't interest me at all. I know Joe from Secular Party is. Mm. That's one of his things, and other people are right into it. And I really don't care what people believe. Just don't force it on other people and don't expect special privileges. I'm I'm with Joe on this, I think, Mm. because, uh, you know, the question, does it influence uh, your, your, your important life decisions? For a lot of people, it does. And this is something that Sam Harris um, emphasises quite regularly. He says, look, you know, a lot of people just refuse to believe that people will literally go and kill themselves in the act of murdering other people who are the, the real targets. Um, people, He said people refuse to accept the idea that anyone could possibly believe that as soon as their body is blown to smithereens they're magically transported into this wonderful place called heaven. He said, actually, yes, people do believe it and it does shape their decisions on on what they do. That's why I think it's important because it does definitely have an influence on what people do. I don't say it's not important. It's just that for me, it's not one of my things that gets me going. So I've got enough on the plate with other stuff that I just... I'm more about, you know, I don't care... Just get out of the way. There's more my sort of thing. But you're right, it is important, but I'll leave that for other people to, okay. to leave, fight leave that battle. To Joe and me. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> Good on you, Joe. Um, 
uh, Australians are asked, which best describes your belief about God? Uh, I don't believe in God, and I never have, 21%. I don't believe in God, but I used to, 14%. I believe in God, but I didn't used to, 5%. I believe in God, and I always have, 40%. That's quite a lot, isn't it? It is. I can't choose 20%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. But that's quite a lot, isn't it? 40%. I believe in God and I always have. But, Doesn't you know, this is, this is all over the planet. Most people believe in magic. And it's the same thing. But you know what? The previous question said, which of these comes closest to your belief? There is a personal God, and only 24% said that. (laughs) Yeah, personal God and believing in magic is not exactly There is some sort of spiritual life force, was 35. So I reckon, of that number, I believe in God and I always have, there's a a spirituality element to that, Mm. where people believe in a spirit force, but not the Abrahamic-style God that people usually think of yeah well new new age spirituality comes into that category Mm. doesn't it Mm. and i don't know about you but i've got a couple at work at least one (laughs) who's very very new agey but um do you take them on no i don't because they're relatively harmless right yeah you know they they're not into blowing people up or or, or trying to con- you know, convince people that there's heaven and hell. They're just, you know, these happy people who just... Yeah, but they're into alternative facts then, you know. That's, just, that's potentially sense, as dangerous. It's just potentially well, look, as dangerous. I, I agree. That it's, You're going to leave that for other people to fight that one. No, I just, I just see them as the, the relatively low-risk type. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, they're, the they're just not going to go out and kill other people. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. You know, they're too busy... Yeah. Being peaceful and happy, and yeah, you know. yeah, they might kill themselves through refusing to take Western medicine, or yes. their children by refusing vaccinations. That's right. But, yeah. You know, their impact on humanity is relatively yeah. minimal. Twelfth man, how often do you pray or meditate? Oh, you know me, Trevor. Um, never. I'm going to put you in the never category, as like thirty-eight percent of the population. Nineteen yeah. percent pray every day, most days or several times a day. Mm. 11, pray once a week or a few times a week. Mm. So that's about, that's, that's up to 30% who yeah. pray at least once a week. Yeah. And 13% are occasionally. So we're up to 40, we're up to 43. And 3% don't know if they pray or... Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> that's right. Or what's that about? I don't know. You know <laughs> surely you know whether you pray or not. You'd think. Mm. And the last one? Mm. Australians were asked, apart from special occasions, how often do you attend religious services? At least once a week was 11%. Mm. At least monthly, 7%. Several times a year, 8%. 6% were once a year. 21% were less frequently and 47% never. And I love that 47%. Yeah. And look... You know, for me, the most interesting figures there are the 11 and the 7. So the 11 once a week and 7 about once a month or at least once a month. So they're the, mm. the regular churchgoers. That's only 18%. Mm. That's a, you know, 
Where do you fall in that category? It's a significant minority. Where do I fall in it? Uh, you know, even at my mother's funeral, I refused to participate See, in any you, kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. You're actually in the less frequently category because you and I both attended a Hillsong Oh, we did, but that yes. was that was uh, research. Research say. wouldn't count for this. Yeah. It really wouldn't, let's yeah. face it. That yeah. was pure research. I agree. Interesting statistics. Keep those in a, in a top drawer to be called upon in various debates. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, 12th man. Um, you posted this on the Secular Party Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Australian Federal Police put out an ad we're recruiting yes again actually it wasn't me but anyway oh, okay yeah. but it was on the secular party facebook page right, right. the squeaky wheel yeah right okay the afp needs more women in its ranks we need a better gender balance mm-hmm. with our ultimate goal being a 50 50 representation of men and women yep. this is because drum roll please we need to be representative of the community we, we serve. As a result, for this recruitment round, we are unashamedly targeting women. Mm. Your thoughts, 12th man? Where do you start with something like that? I mean, they're police. It's, it's not the Salvation Army they're recruiting for. It's for <laughs> the police. Now, police's job is to enforce the law, isn't it? catch bad guys well sometimes and sometimes it means using reasonable force to enforce the law now if if it were me who do i want to enforce the law the people who are going to do it most effectively now last time i checked on average men are physically stronger than women on average now i'm i have no problem with them recruiting women at all because Mm. there are certain roles that are perfectly suitable for women. But when you've got the bad guys out there and you have to go and bring them in to face justice, who do you want to bring them in? You'd need some big burly guys. Wouldn't you? Because, you know what, sometimes the baddies don't cooperate. Sometimes they don't. I've heard that too, yeah. That's, they, they maybe that's just a nasty rumour. They either want to run away... Or they will want to stand and, and fight. sometimes they actually put up a bit of resistance is what I've heard. Yeah. I had a nephew who was contemplating entering the police force and he was concerned about his capacity to, to handle the physical altercations that he would get into. Yeah. And he actually went and did a lot of self-defence um, stuff and jiu-jitsu. And at the time, he was 6 foot 2 and 110 kilos. And um, he was concerned about his ability to handle what was going to be required. And he ended up being a bouncer and doing all sorts of things. He's an amazingly physically capable guy now. But he actually did quite a bit of extra training because he was concerned about that. And he never actually got in the police force. Um, No. But um, I can, you know, I saw this YouTube video the other day where this policewoman was pulled over this um, guy who was riding his bicycle on a footpath and she was no chance of apprehending this guy and forcing him to be arrested and putting cuffs on him until reinforcements arrived in in the shape of a big burly guy. Look, I've seen some amazing 
um, martial arts practitioners mm. from East Asia, mm. Japanese specifically, who were not physically not big guys, but were, had in, incredible technique. Yes. But, look, on average, you know, all things being equal, the bigger, stronger, musclier person is usually going to win. Yeah. So, by all means, if women want to apply, welcome them with open arms. But to actually say that you're positive discrimination, and this is the bit that gets me to men. Uh, our goal is 50-50 representation. This is because we need to be representative of the community we serve. Well, what does that it, mean? That's so wishy-washy. Be, it, be representative. What's their job? What are they that, being hired that, to, to do? Yeah, to catch baddies. To be representative? What you need is people who are capable of doing the job description. What do That's you think? what you need. And there's various jobs, various descriptions, so there's a place for everybody, I'm sure. But it just doesn't make sense that your police force has to match the demographic of your society, otherwise you've failed. Yeah. um... Mm. So that's that one. Twelfth man. Um, We've got the uh, Federal Secular Index on the um, website, Iron Fist Velvet Glove. And friend of the program, Janelle, has been fantastic. She came through with some great information about Terry Butler and also Erica Betts. Good on you, Janelle. Fantastic work. You've put me to shame because yours is far more detailed than what I've done in the past. She's given Eric a Betts a zero. Yep. and says he's actually worse, uh, more of a religious zealot than Tony Abbott. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think she's right, actually, yep. so I agree with that. Okay. And um, she quotes here um, part of uh, Erica Betts. Uh, on separation of church and state, he, meaning Erica Betts, quotes Ronald Reagan on his, on his blog. This is the Erica Betts blog. Quote, And I know you will agree with me that standing up for Australia also means standing up for the God who has so blessed our land. I believe this country hungers for spiritual revival. I believe it longs to see traditional values reflected in public policy again. To those who argue the separation of church and state as a reason for excluding God from more and more of our institutions in everyday life, may I just say... Separation of church and state was not to protect the people of this country from religious values. It was to protect religious values from government tyranny. That's the exact opposite of what it was intended, (laughs) isn't it? Oh, great quote, Janelle. Brilliant find there. Oh, my God. On abortion, he said, I think the studies, and I think they date back from the 1950s, assert that there is a link between abortion and breast cancer. And he also says, I'm claiming there is anti-Christian bias in the media. If you have a Christian conservative point of view to offer, the media will have this negative sentiment override, which will simply be critical of any views that you may seek to express. Wow. I knew Erica Betts was bad. And Janelle... I didn't realise he was quite so uh, doctrinaire about his religion. This... Secular Index, 12th Man, is going to be a valuable resource as part of our think tank that we're creating here. Are you going to, are you going to do one for me? Are you going to look up a politician? Uh, I, I might. Can I get a quick commitment from you? Um, 
yeah, okay. One. Right. Okay, good. It's not that hard. No, I don't suppose it's that hard. You don't have to go quite to the length Janelle did. It'd be great on the particularly the real religious nutters yeah, if you okay. do. But um, it's valuable. Who hasn't been done? Have a look at the index and you'll see blank spaces. Okay. And, yeah, I'll, I'll there have you a go. look and pick one. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Oh, our friend. Now, about three months ago, when when was Anzac Day? What's that? Um, April 25th. Thank you. So uh, about a week after that, um, she disappeared from the radar and said, you know, well, it was probably a little bit longer from that that she said, I'm actually going. I'm heading off to London. I'm leaving town. I'm, I'm leaving Dodge. Mm. At the time, we said, uh, Scott and I, that we thought it would probably be about three months and she would bob up again. And it's almost three months to the day from the podcast we mentioned it. She's bobbed up with an article in the uh, Teen Vogue magazine titled... I tried to fight racism by being a model minority, and then it backfired. And she goes on for quite a whinge, 12 million. Were you impressed by her whinge? Not in the least <laughs> impressed. I, I thought it was a... Um, oh, it was so, so, full of, so full of her, wasn't it? It was full of her self-pity and her self-righteous ind- indignation is what it was full of, because... She claims to be the, the champion of the oppressed minorities in Australia and she claims to be the one who really sees Australian racists for what they are and she, she, she wants to help us be a bit less racist. Mm. But ah, she's... Um, she reveals herself as a total narcissist. And a racist. It. Yes. She's a racist. Yes. She seems to think... Anybody who isn't coloured, like her, mm-hmm. and I, it's another word that I have a problem with, coloured, because mm. I don't know what colour you are, but I'm uh, slightly pink, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm certainly not white. And I, I, mm. that is such a ridiculous term to label people as white, you know. It's whites and the rest, and the rest are somehow coloured. It's an absurd classification. Well, I don't know. We know what we mean when we say a white we person, know Anglo-Saxon. Means. We know what it means, mm. but it's a, it's a ridiculous classification because mm. where does white stop? Does it stop at Switzerland, mm. Italy, uh, Czechoslovakia? Who, who mm. is white? Who is in the white category and who isn't? You know? mm. Are Spanish people white? Yes. Well, do you know, historically, there's mm. a lot of um, Arab Yes, uh, the ancestry Moors. among yes. the Spanish. Yes, yes, uh, but of course, Arabs are not white. Paul, it, it all brown de- people. It all depends as to what they themselves identify as. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's totally arbitrary. Just, but anyway, just, dear listener, just to give you a bit of a flavour of this article, I'm going to read four lines for you. 
I did well academically. I served my community. I played the part. I started a youth organisation, Youth Without Borders, at 16, which empowered young people to work together for positive change in their communities. I studied mechanical engineering at university, partly because I loved cars, and partly because engineering was a profession that, I've, that would give me credibility in the corporate world. If I was going to make positive change from within, I needed every shred of credibility I could get, I told myself. Dear listener, in four lines, she uses the word I ten times. Yeah, and that says it all, doesn't it? That says it all, and the article is littered with... with Beautiful, beautiful, beautifully shot photographs of our friend Yasmin. Yes. And she's very photogenic. And look, I I give her full credit for studying hard at university, getting a a good degree in a useful occupation, for starting that uh, that, that youth, um, uh, you know, it was a fairly constructive organisation as far as I can tell. Mm. The one for, what was it, Youth Without Borders? I, I don't know it what sounds, usefulness it had. I don't know anything about it, but it sounds good, I have to say. It sounds divisive to me. Well, use mm. without borders, Trevor, meaning, you know, wherever you are, wherever you come from, you're, if you're, you're young, you can be part of this and you can do something constructive. You're, you're, surely you pay no attention to the... To- well, you should pay attention to the titles of things. Twelfth man. Well, yeah, I, I, Be- because in this day and age, no, I actually ti- looked it up. The title up. tells you a lot. But like, just remember, yeah. we've just been speaking about the Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement uh, Act. Like this, yeah, this but that's is part that's of deliberate subterfuge, isn't it? Well, well, well I don't is, think and this without is the... borders was deliberate subterfuge. I think she had a, a you know, genuinely. Uh, positive and constructive idea about that one. Right. All I'm saying I'm, I'm trying is, to give her some credit here. All I'm saying is I don't trust titles because, you know, Notre Dame University, there's yes. a title that's misleading. That, Why? You know, the, the Recreational Enhancement Act, there's a title that's misleading. That one's definitely misleading. You know, Trinity Western Law School, you know, a bunch of bloody religious nutters running a law school. Yeah. That's that's a misleading title. Freedom like, freedom for faith, there's another misleading. Yeah. Like, these groups will give themselves titles that are the exact opposite of what they're actually on about in order to mislead people. I'm trying to, you know, offer a bit of balance here to your bigotry, <laughs> Fizz. I'm, I'm trying to good. find something good about Yasmin, and yeah. I'm sure there is a lot of good things about her. Yeah, they might be hard to find, but no, she's a, you know, she's a hardworking, conscientious young person. That in itself is not a bad thing. Yes. I think where she's gone off, off on a tangent, is with postmodernism because she's mm. clearly deeply influenced by postmodernism and uh, yeah, the whole identity, intersectionality. Mm. Identity politics and all the toxic nonsense that goes with that. Mm. Mm. But, you know, I think at heart, she's a decent person. You know, she wants a better world. And, you know, I mean, she's coming from the same place as us in that respect. She's just been fed some misinformation, I yes. think. And she's, she's locked herself into that. That's true. But I think there's a huge element of narcissistic self-promotion going on there, which makes me question her altruistic credentials. (laughs) 
anyone who can write an article and use the word I yeah, ten I, times in four lines it's true. is showing worrying signs. And I, unfortunately, in my private life, are having to deal with a narcissist at the moment, and this is smacks of that. Oh, so, dear. Yeah. yeah. And also, to publish the article in Teen Vogue, so she's... She's clearly presenting herself as a role model for young people. Mm. Quite, that that much is evident, mm. and uh, she's to me not presenting a very a very constructive role model. It's very, as you said, narcissistic, mm. and she's so convinced that she's correct. You know, there's no there's no room there's no sort of wiggle room there at all, is there? There's no like, well, I think this might be the way to go, go guys. No, 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 she's very. Very sure of herself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is usually risky, isn't it? Yeah. Let's face it. I mean, yeah, yes. you know, we. I think. I think we are relatively open to argument. Yes. And that's what you need to be. Yeah. yeah. We she's could, not. She's not very open. We could be wrong about things. Yeah. yeah. And look, you know, I I mentioned earlier um, the the program she did for SBS on racism in Australia. Now that mm. was a shocker. Right. That was a real shocker. She had a, a sample of four Australians, one white Australian male who at the outset, at the beginning of the program, came out and admitted he was, he was a bit of a racist, at least a bit of a racist. And uh, then there was an Aboriginal woman. Um, there was a, an African man who I think from a um, refugee background and a young woman who was born in South Korea, but I think had spent quite a lot of her life growing up in Australia. So she spoke, you know, with a total Australian accent, but she saw, she saw herself as, a, as an Asian, you know. Mm-hmm. So we had these, you know, three so-called coloured people and one white Aussie racist. This was the sample size she, she used to analyse Australian society and the the way that racism affected Australian society. I mean, mm. it was ridiculous. Mm. And, you know, it was, it was really, really... It was supposed to be a scientific presentation. It was so lacking in any scientific, scientific validity. And at the end of the program, they all sat around the dinner table together and held hands and had a big love-in. Were they singing Kumbaya? Just about, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the tears running down the uh, the cheeks and drinking wine and, mm-hmm. oh, gee, I used to be a racist, but now I love everybody. <laughs> you know, it was the most ridiculous thing. You okay. should watch it sometime. No, I can't. I couldn't stand it. I'll rely on your report of that. Yeah, well, this is, this is typical of the work of our friend Yasmin. Yeah. And as I said, I think she's coming from a place of... of idealism mm. essentially she's an idealist she wants a better world mm. she's just really really um, misinformed about the the character of the world that mm. she lives in mm. and that has shaped her perceptions and her judgments and her her solutions her proposed solutions is just see the world like I do and Stop being a racist, okay? <laughs> I think that's basically her solution, isn't it? Yeah. Well, one of the problems with the whole identity politics is the minorities are saying to white people, I'm going to call you white for the moment, is, okay. is you must understand me, but 
you are incapable of understanding yeah. me. Yeah. And that's what obviously... That's right. And this came out in her infamous walkout. Yes, uh, with Lionel Shriver Lionel at the Shriver, uh, Brisbane the, Writers the Festival. Writer. Yeah, mm. and Lionel Shriver, of course, was saying that, uh, look, you know, it's fiction, for goodness mm. sake, and people with a creative, um, literarily creative mind mm. are perfectly entitled to write whatever characters comes into their mind. Mm. And uh, Yasmin got, mm. stood up very publicly, and this is part of her narcissism, isn't it? Yes. Very publicly stood up in front of everybody yes. in the auditorium, wherever yes. it was. She took it all very personally. And walked out in front of everybody to make a big... Because um, well, she viewed it as a personal slight on well, her. Well, it, yeah. it was a display of Yasmin's mm. virtue is mm. what it was. It mm. was a very public display of virtue, what we call virtue signalling, of course, and walked out because how dare this white American woman uh, presume to be able to f- write fictional non-white characters. Mm. I mean... I, I recommend Lionel Shriver's work, uh, The Mandibles, I think it was a book I read. Have you read it? Yeah, I read the fiction work. It was good because after read reading it. her articles in defence, well, mm. uh, you know, poo-pooing the idea of cultural appropriation, she wrote so well I thought, oh, I've got to read one of her novels. And good The Mandibles was a really good... I'll lend it to you while you're here. I, but I don't find a lot of time for fiction. Yeah. Maybe someday. Okay, all right. Now, um, we occasionally get feedback from listeners, which is great because I love um, hearing it. So this one, in fact, um, involves you and I, 12th Man, and uh, this comes from John August. I don't think John minds me using his full name. And... Uh, I'll play what he... He's probably going to lose his job tomorrow. (laughs) Well, no, I think he's openly, you know, I think that's okay. Um, Here we go. Hi there, Iron Fist and Velvet Glove. I've struggled to put my thoughts into 90 seconds and thanks for the opportunity to take a bit longer. This is about three minutes, so I'd, I'd hope I'm not pushing the opportunity. There's lots of things I'd like to say on numerous issues, but for the present I'll limit myself to former Commissioner Gillian Triggs' comments on Sharia law in episode 111, saying that there should be recognition of Sharia law in Australia. In fact, I don't think it's as bad as you make out, but I don't think Triggs was asked a well-nuanced question, nor she was able to make a nuanced reply. I realise you're legally qualified, so indulge me if I'm pointing out something you know all too well. Our legal system is about criminal and civil law. Criminal law is when you do something wrong and the state jumps on you, while civil law is about resolving disputes between citizens. In fact, when it comes to civil law, you go to an independent judge, magistrate or perhaps a registrar making a decision, and they may well then look at rights. But it is not like a respect for rights is forced onto us, as it is with criminal law. In fact, if the two parties can resolve the dispute themselves, the state takes no interest. You don't have to go to the legal system, but rather you can if you want to. And at the start of the legal process, there can be mandated mediation. I think Trigg's comments should be considered in this light. I don't think she was talking about replacing the criminal law system, in that things which are currently illegal would now be legal. She was talking about making Sharia law an adjunct to the civil law system, 
where it would, if it was a matter of private law and also the idea that the parties concerned could use the regular legal system if they wanted to. Her statement really only makes sense when it is limited to the civil system. In fact, the civil system is only there for when the parties cannot sort it out themselves. If Sharia provides a framework for mediation or an appeal to a private adjudicator separate to the regular legal system, I see no problem. The rub here is, of course, the idea of voluntary agreement to Sharia mediation or adjudication. Are people really agreeing or are they submitting to a social obligation? I think we need to assume that people are pursuing their own free will, but you may differ. Keep in mind that even in the current legal system, people may game it, obliging someone to accept an offer less than what they would get in court because going to court is an onerous undertaking. Some people will always try to game the system. It does not matter whether it is our regular legal system or a Sharia system. Thanks for listening, and I'll leave you to it. There you go. So, John's saying that Triggs was more or less suggesting that the Sharia system was a, um, a method of negotiation prior to a court case. But... Let's just play a little bit of what we actually said from that uh, Triggs discussion, if I can find it. Here we go. Should Sharia divorce courts be allowed in Australia? Um, I think that, uh, that that becomes, if it's a matter of private law within the Muslim community uh, and they want to manage their affairs in that way and they believe in those, those rules, that, that's, uh, that's reasonably acceptable. But at the same time, uh, if they want to go to the, the civil law courts uh, and to have the system determined according to Australian law, uh, then they would be obviously uh, entitled to do that as well. So, so a group of people can have whatever law they want to, provided they agree to it's it within the Australian system. If you, as a small group, decide you want a particular set of laws... It's your choice. You can choose which law you're going to go to. And we're talking about a system that's got some inherently bad things in there for women. Oh, my this, God. This is from a human, a former human rights commissioner. I know. And a well-educated woman. Yes. What was her back? So there you go. That's what we discussed. Yeah. I reckon when she was asked, she makes a distinction between two different court systems. And she's not saying, oh, this is a mediation process that people could have in the lead-up to using the normal family court system, she was proposing it as an alternative, mm. I think. Yeah. So that would be number one, John, is I think you've given her more credit than what her comments were. John, John was saying it wouldn't apply to criminal law. Well, what he was then saying was that um, in the civil sphere we can have a mediation at any stage, in which the parties can agree to whatever they want in order to resolve their dispute. So he was then saying that that would be acceptable to have some sort of Sharia law mediation system as a lead-up to a um, normal family court settlement so that the people could you know, agree along the lines of what they're used to culturally. So... So, number one, John, I don't think Triggs was suggesting that. I think she was proposing alternative court systems. But even if she was accepting that, uh, or if you accept that she was saying that, when we talk about um, what people can agree to at any time in mediation in the civil sphere, 
family law is a bit different. So yes, in a commercial arrangement where you've got people who are in dispute over commercial leases or contracts or whatever, they can agree to whatever they want to at any time and stop the action. In the family court system, the way that people resolve that usually is what's called a consent order. So what happens is that the parties in the family court draw up, you know, once they've reached an agreement, they um, they draw it up and they say, okay, the wife's going to get 65% of the assets, the man's going to get 35%. This means that, you know, he keeps that super, she keeps this house, the boat goes this way, the, you know, the cat and dog go this way, blah, blah, blah. So they draw up an agreement and that is then presented to a family court judge who then will make that an order of the court. So it's called a consent order. Now, the interesting thing in the family court is that you just can't rock up with a one-sided agreement that is unfair to a party. The judge will look at it and say, I don't care. Go and have another look at it. That you have come to this agreement. Based on the facts presented to me, I'm not going to make this order. Mm. It's not fair. So... In the family court sphere, we actually... You can't make whatever private arrangement you want to. Um, In fact, the judge will look at the proposed uh, agreement and decide for himself whether he will accept it, and he will at times knock it back. So as a lawyer, if you actually have a really, really good agreement where the other side has caved in, you might be concerned that, in fact, it won't get through because the judge will say, this is too one-sided. Go back and do something else. And family law is based on what? Family Law Act. No, what I mean is it's based on community values, isn't it? Yes. Of fairness. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, what did people bring into the relationship? What roles did they have during the relationship? What are their obligations what after their the contrib- relationship? Contributions to the to yeah. the relationship and the collective yep. uh, wealth. Yeah. So, having said all that, you might say, well, you know, if people make an agreement under Sharia law and the judge looks at that and says that's unfair, then the judge might well then turn around and say that's unfair. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that order. But we don't want to be giving judges unfair agreements all the time because, um, you know, these things do get flavoured and you can get unfair agreements pushed through and if something's being based on Sharia law principles, there's a fair chance that it will be unfair to the woman and while there is a safety net of a judge saying this is unfair... Uh, it's not a good way to start off. And one of the problems, and I've got a link here to an article from The Australian, um, Muslim women agree to Sharia agreements so that they can then initiate a religious divorce before Islamic imams and avoid being stuck in a restrictive, limping marriage. An issue of increasing concern is where Muslim men refuse to give their wives a religious divorce even though they're even though the couple may be civilly divorced. She's unable to remarry or travel to Islamic countries and can be ostracised. The husband is not penalised as he can take up to four wives without penalty under Islamic law. So this is the imbalance of power 
that happens if you're going to be introducing this sort of cultural flavoured marriage settlement process where women are going to need a, a religious divorce, the men don't need one because they can have up to four wives, the women are inherently yeah. in a position of less power. It's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And if we permit people to choose Sharia law, why not any other kind of uh, ethnic, cultural uh, law mm. that they, they might choose? Mm. You know? And, you know, it's the risk, you know, you rock up to the judge and say, well, this has been agreed to, it's culturally what they, what they are comfortable with. It's, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know whether judges are influenced by that or not, but I hope they wouldn't be, but they might be. I don't know how it works. But anyway. Yeah, I, I, I think fundamentally we can't have a country where law is um, whatever you choose. Yeah, it's got to be one law for all. Surely. Yeah. And the inherent unfairness of Sharia means it has no place in the system. It's, the, you know, the enlightenment principle of universality, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Where it's the same for everybody. Yeah. So it doesn't favour or, you know, doesn't advantage or disadvantage anybody. Everybody has exactly the same rights and the same responsibilities and the mm. same opportunities. When people are in an inherently disadvantaged situation, we've got to help them out. And women under a Sharia law styled negotiation are at a disadvantage for sure. Mm. But John, thank you very much for your uh, questioning of our thought processes and we'll have to agree to disagree perhaps. Yeah, look, I think John was was trying to, you know, give Gillian Triggs the benefit of the doubt that maybe Mm. Gillian didn't quite grasp the gravity of the question, Mm. if you like, so... Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair enough too. Wouldn't you think, as a human rights commissioner, though, you'd be deeply suspicious? Think, yeah. And what, do you know what her background is? No. I don't either. No. But she got the job as commissioner, so she's at least got an academic background or a, or a legal background. Don't know. Wouldn't you think? You would think so, but I don't know. Yeah. More uh, feedback, this time from Jimmy, who says, uh, Hello, Mr Fist and Mr Glove. Well, it's not often that I completely disagree with the fist's take on an issue. In fact, usually I'm, I'm usually in furious agreement. But on this issue, I think you're way off the mark. And he's talking about the taking the knee in the American um, sporting world. You familiar with this topic? man just in passing i haven't <laughs> do you listen do you listen to this podcast when you're not actually on it do you actually, no i do right I do. okay do you, but, um yeah look you know i know it's been in the news a lot recently but yep. um i don't know what i think about the taking the knee i think i think if people want to take the knee they're perfectly entitled to take the knee i think it's a bit of a superficial um gesture myself right I mean, if, they, if they're so concerned about... What are they protesting? They're protesting um, uh, uh, violence against African-Americans, isn't it? Well, isn't it obvious when you take the knee during the national anthem and the raising of the flag what you're protesting about? Yeah. The, the, if, the I mean, as a, as a symbolic 
thank you, 12th man, as a symbolic gesture. If you were taking a knee during the Star Spangled Banner and the raising of the flag, I mean, what, what, what could it possibly mean? You're saying the United States is rubbish, aren't you? Well, I, that's my point. That is my point, yeah. is that as a symbolic gesture, it's, it's not very clear. Well, one assumes look, you're objecting to the whole notion of, of the flag and be, the country. They may well be very misguided, but, you know, in terms of their freedom to express their point of view, I, I say let them have it. I agree. Let them have I mean, by all means, Colin Kaepernick. Take a knee. Take a knee if that's what you want to do. But, but by all means, be criticised by the Iron Fist absolutely. for a, a poor protest, oh, it's a misguided poor, protest, yeah, it's absolutely an unhelpful protest and one that works against yeah. what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. So, And considering those professional football players are generally pretty well remunerated <laughs> and they have a pretty privileged life, it looks so totally shallow, doesn't it? Yes, uh, you know, if you're worried about, yeah. But Any, I don't think they should be fired. I, I, for it. I don't. I'll put it that no, way. no, don't be fired for it. Make your no. protest, but be criticised for making a poor protest. Yeah. I'd say. Jimmy says here um, that he doesn't really want me to talk about this. So sorry, Jimmy. I have because um, he says you know there's much more Australian stuff to be talked about, local issues. But I guarantee you, Jimmy, there will be we'll Australian sportsmen yeah. taking knees over the next. Maybe not taking these, but they'll find some way to virtue signal. You know, if Anthony Mundine was playing football today at the grand final last Sunday, I guarantee you he would have taken a knee because he loves copying American black culture. He's he's a Muslim too, you know that, don't you? If John Stephenson, the runner, was running, he'd take a knee. And I reckon Nick Kyrgios would think about it. I mean, these guys are up for this stuff. Yeah. And Stan, so, you know, Stan Grant has written an article. He wrote an article about Tony Abbott at the Manly Ferry when he was handing out mm. his um, How to Vote cards and looking very lonely as a deposed Prime Minister struggling to sort of get votes in his electorate. And Stan Grant wrote an article comparing Tony Abbott to Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee. It was the most... Stan... I've bagged you for years. Recently, you came good with some stuff, and now you've gone off off the boil again. Like the, the, the article look, was terrible. I have a certain amount of respect for Stan, hmm. uh, but he's pretty. He's a little bit uh, uneven in his uh, analysis, isn't he? Hmm. Twelfth man. When so, Colin Kaepernick is the player who's sort of kicked all this off, um, and he was asked um, why is he taking a knee, and he's. Uh, when he explained why, he only spoke about the present. I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of colour. Mm. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid to leave and getting away with murder. Yeah, That's, right. So he's clearly stated that his reason for taking a knee is because of police killing black people. Yeah. It's a very selective view of uh, the... Um other, the legacy of the United States, isn't it? The other people legacy. are now trying to beef up his reasoning, and um, and what one article I've linked to here refers to is the words in the Star Spangled Banner, because 
at the end of the third verse, a bit like our anthem, 12th Man, like we never get past the first verse and, you know, in a traditional American setting, they would never get to the third. Mm. Um, But in the third verse, um, it says, No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And that is a reference to the fact that during the particular battle of Fort McHenry in Baltimore that prompted the Star Spangled Banner, the black slaves had defected to the British side. Mm. And the third verse is kind of rejoicing at the fact that the hirelings and slave could not find refuge in the battle. So they were all killed. Well, you know, some of them were obviously. So, um, so there you go. During the particular battle, black slaves uh, fought with the British, and some people are saying, "Well, taking a knee at the flag is justification for the third verse." There you go. But Colin Kaepernick didn't say that. No, and he probably doesn't even know that the words are in the song, does he? Do you think? Uh, he knows. Um, yeah. So there's a little that, bit of trivia. Uh, that's intriguing. I didn't know that about the song. Mm. It's quite a violent song. Even mm. the first verse talks about bombs and and uh, and yeah. killings and and cannon flying and. Uh, yeah, look, the United yeah. States. You know, as we we discussed before, it's 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 really a mixed bag, isn't it? It's. it's I mean, we can easily point to some amazing achievements cultural and technological and scientific they've also got some some dark chapters in their history obviously mm. not only mm. slavery but um uh the, you know the conquest of the philippines after they defeated the spanish they literally went out and slaughtered a lot of filipinos to, mm. to take control of that country and mm. i dare say they did it in parts of latin america as well so, yeah, in summary, uh, I would say if the protest of taking a knee is meant to protest the first verse, then fine, but say that because, it, you know, the whole anthem means so much more. Mm. And, um, and really, that's then got nothing to do with police killing blacks. So Not if you're going to make symbolic one. gestures, be very clear in your symbolism. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Just... Uh, the whole idea of black people being killed by police. The mm. statistics are very interesting on this. Yeah. The statistics say that it's actually not what exactly as they present it. In 2015, the Washington Post launched a real-time database to track fatal police shootings, and the project continues to this day, to this year. As of Sunday... Actually, when was this article? This article was last year. Anyway... Mm. As of Sunday, 1,502 people have been shot and killed by on-duty police officers. 1,500? Yeah, since 2015. So this is basically a, uh, a year and a half. Okay. 1,502 people shot and killed. It's a lot of dead people, isn't it? It is. Isn't that a lot? I mean, that is just incredible. If one person gets shot in Australia, shot and yeah. killed by police, yeah. it's front-page news, isn't it? Okay. So of that 1,500, 732 were white, 381 were black, and 382 were of another or unknown race. 
Okay. 1,500 killed? Proportionally. What proportion of the US population are African American? Excellent question. You're on the ball, Twelfth Man. Despite the beer and wine that we've been consuming quite rapidly here this evening, and you all, this is getting low, but um, good question. And the answer is that there are nearly 160 million more white people in America than there are black people. White people make up roughly 62% of the population, but only 49% of those who are killed by police officers. African-Americans, however, account for 24% of those fatally shot and killed, despite being just 13% of the US population. So, yes, it's not good when you take into account the proportion of the population. Mm. But still, there's a lot of white people killed by police. And if you are an American citizen worried about police killings, be just as worried about white people being killed. This is the point of the whole thing. It doesn't matter what colour you are. You know, my understanding is that in these counties and whatever, you can slap a badge on people and they're a police officer with not nearly the level of training that we do in a place like Australia or England. Like, this is one of the reasons why, you know, it's not a particularly well-paid job and the training's poor and the risks are high. Because they know a lot of criminals have guns. And, and, And surely that's precisely why they shoot first and ask questions later, isn't it? Yeah. Because they know if they don't shoot the other guy first they uh, have a pretty good chance of being shot and maybe killed themselves. So, Colin Kaepernick, if you're worried about black lives, then protest the gun laws and protest the poor police training and accountability afterwards. Yeah. That's what you should I be protesting. I saw a really funny thing on, on the internet, on Facebook, uh, Fist, and mm-hmm. it was it was a, a parody of you know Black Lives Matter, of course, and it was... Um, it's something about it was some law of physics, you know, that mm-hmm. if you, you know, multiply by the I don't know the, the speed of light or whatever it is, we all matter. In other words, we're all just, matter. Just you whack know? the microphone, but yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Your, your microphone technique we need to work just a bit. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was a, it was a, a play on on words. Yes. But, we all matter. In other yes. words, we are all made of yes. matter. Yes, yes. It was very funny. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Statistics, there are, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, 12th man. So they say. A link to another article that says, uh, so that other one I read was uh, Washington Post. Yeah. I mean, that's reputable. You'd think. Another article here, this one is from uh, Chicago Tribune. I might have given you this one. What's the title? Uh, My Implicit Bias Against Black People. I'll, I'll read the important bit to you, 12th okay. Man. Just, what is it called again? My Implicit Bias Against Black People. Oh, let me see if I can find it. No, sorry. It's okay. In any event, Chicago Tribune, you would have thought, is okay as a source. Anyway, the statistic they give is of a pro-publica analysis of deadly force killings, found young black men were 21 times as likely as their white peers to be killed by police. That's alarming. It doesn't match up with the statistic we just read before. It it doesn't, but it might be a a local statistic rather than a nationwide one. I don't know. This goes to show it's hard to sometimes know um, 
where the truth lies in these statistics. But here's a quote which I found very interesting, 12th man. The Reverend Jesse Jackson, remember him? 1980s? Was oh, going to yeah. run for he president. was a presidential, potential Canada. presidential yeah. candidate yeah. some years ago. Yeah, he was. A preacher, I believe. The Reverend Aren't Jesse they Jackson. All? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's actually good political grounding for a lot of women political, black women political activists get their grounding as leaders in as the church. church leaders. Yeah. Why is it good? Because it's one of the few opportunities they get to oh, express leadership ability. Yeah. Yeah. And it's respectable. Yeah. Anyway, Reverend Jesse Jackson admitted in the 1980s, said this, dear listener, is a true um, black activist. You know, he's running for president. And blah, blah, blah. He's very famous. Mm. Yeah. Quote, there is nothing more painful to me at this stage in my life than to walk down the street and hear footsteps then turn around and see somebody white and feel relieved. Oh, isn't that terrible? Wow, that's, that's quite uh, startling, isn't it, it is. to hear him say something like that? Yeah, it is. Chicago Tribune, I assume it's true, I didn't Snopes check it, but that's an interesting thing. Shoot him thing. an email and ask him if it's true. Yeah. One final thing on this, Jimmy, um, about this taking a knee. I mean, the true believers were in the 50s and 60s. You're Martin Luther King and John Lewis and people. Mm. Here's an article that I've linked to. Um, when a young organiser named John Lewis spoke at the march on Washington in 1963, he delivered a scorching rebuke of racism and its political, economic and social exploitation. But Lewis did something else. He aligned his side, the civil rights movement, with the symbols and ideals of America. It was a deliberate strategy. Even as the movement's leaders raged against their country's oppression of them, even as their enemies called them traitors, they cast themselves as patriots... Uh, they urged the country to live up to its founding creed. That's because they knew that would give themselves the best chance to win their fight. Martin Luther King, in 1955, said, The glory of America, with all its faults. And at the March on Washington, King described not just a dream, but a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Uh, a year and a half later, marches from Selma to Montgomery carried American flags. Segregationist hecklers along the route held up Confederate flags. Within six months, Lyndon Johnson had signed the Voting Rights Act. Symbols matter in politics. They often matter more than the detailed arguments. The athletes are right. They've got every right to protest. But, the writer of this article says, I've reluctantly become convinced that many athletes are making a tactical mistake. Yes, the athletes and their allies can make nuanced, genuine arguments about why kneeling during the national anthem is not meant as a rebuke to the entire country. Almost 70% of Americans get that protests are directed at police violence and not the flag. Yet, only 36% consider the kneeling protest to be appropriate. Why? Because most Americans respect the country's symbols and because standing is a simple sign of respect. You stand to greet someone, you stand at weddings and in church, you stand for ovations. 
Sitting while others stand sends a different message. You can't get angry, you have to get smart. So these athletes are just asking for disagreement yeah. from the wider population. They don't have to. They should be doing what the black leaders did of the 50s and 60s, drape themselves flag. in the flag Absolutely. and say to the American public, it's your patriotic duty to be upset about blacks yeah. being killed yeah. rather than separating yourself. They would get a lot more um, people on side. Mm. Yeah. There we go. I agree. Mm. Right, let's take a bet. Somebody, when will an Australian prominent sports prominent Australian sportsman take a knee? The problem is the football's over because they're the most likely ones. Uh, you know, what are we up to now? Tennis and cricketers? Then they're not going to come back to the football. Se- I reckon two months into the football season next year. Here's a prediction. There'll be a taken knee by someone. I, I think mm. they'll find some other mm. symbolic gesture. I, mm. I can't imagine Aussie football players taking a knee. Mm. It's, a, it's a bit wussy, mm. don't you think? Yeah, all we just need is an Anthony Mundine type character. Yeah, Anthony yeah. Mundine, you know. He's, There's not too many like him, but he's the sort. It's <laughs> not a lot between the years. He's a great athlete, I have to mm. Say that, but he wasn't much of a footballer to tell you the truth. But oh, he was an amazing footballer. No, he wasn't. He was oh. very way. You know, you've been reading the Tony Mundine. No, uh, I, I, to to be fair, I didn't watch a lot of rugby league, but I I do remember seeing him score tries, and he looked quite. Yeah, but did you see all the ones where he let the other guys run through? He was a terrible tackler. No, In the grand I, final, he no, let I didn't people run rate through. Him as a tackler, no, he's terrible. So, anyway. Uh, I've been remiss lately. I haven't uh, said thank you to the patrons. Uh, thank you to the patrons of the show. Roberta, Ayami, Sean, Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig, Janelle, Al, John A and Ken. Good on you, patrons. Thank you. Um, Sean and Alex are in the Hall of Fame. I reckon Janelle, with those two entries for our index, she's I think you've made it, Janelle, into our Hall of Fame of patrons. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. And there are a few expenses with maintaining the show in terms of... I do subscribe to a few different things, and I've got... um, The feed is on a website which um, uh, costs money, and I've got all sorts of equipment here. So that's, you know... All these cables. Cables coming everywhere, and the 12th man's dulcet tones are coming through loud and clear. So... Believe me, it's not a profit-making enterprise. I want to, at want all. to see the spiderweb yeah. um, microphone filter. Okay. Well, if we get an if we get another patron this week, then we'll go and get one. Okay. Also, thank you to the various contributors of the Velvet Glove, the Twelfth Man, Right Wing Tony, Squeaky Wheel, Hugh Harris. Thank you, guys. Thank you for those who give us feedback. John August, Janelle, Jimmy, and Deep Throat. Thank you. Voicemail that we get from Landon Hardbottom. Um, thank you, Landon, and also What Problem? And also Smiley Owl, who does the intro and the call for donations occasionally when I play it. So for all the people who get involved in helping out, um, it helps. I really get a warm, fuzzy feeling from the talk, man. <laughs> I'm sure you would. You know, uh, yesterday was, no, Sunday, just before the grand final, a lady knocked on my door. She was from Paul Morgan Research doing polling. I said, it's not a good time. She came back the next day. 
one of the and I agreed to do the poll because I thought 12th man there might be a religion question on it and I could give my two cents worth question on the on the on the poll from Roy Morgan should religion be taught in schools that's a great question what would you say <laughs> Uh, the the word I'm thinking of only has two letters. Well, my question to her was, are you talking about religious education or religious indoctrination when you say, should religion be taught in schools? Yeah. She said, well, that's just the question I can't really say beyond. I said, well, it's a very yeah. misleading question. Yeah, it is a misleading question. Because I would love religious education to be taught in schools, but I do not want religious indoctrination to be taught in schools. Yeah. You're aware... Um, fist that I uh, in a past life was a uh, high school teacher right yes I actually taught it religious education it was well, look it was part of a social education um, course mm-hmm. for you know the junior years of high school yeah. it wasn't called religious education right it was yeah. like comparative religious studies yeah. and it was um it was a good thing. You know, mm. it, was, it was what kids need because they need to know what religion is mm. as, a, you know, as part of human culture. And uh, I taught it to the best of my abilities, but and I only got a few complaints from parents, um, mainly uh, very uh, hardcore Christian parents, one or two, mm-hmm. and uh, one or two Muslim parents didn't like their children being exposed to anything other than their own brand. Mm. So there you go. So ultimately, faced with this question, should religion be taught in schools, my answer was no, because I was worried that I'd be interpreted as a in- religious indoctrination yeah. question. So I, w- I wouldn't label it mm. as teaching religion. Mm. I would label it as teaching human history and culture. Mm. And it is, obviously, very, but anyway, very that, much a part. That was Roy Morgan. Yeah, Roy Morgan Roy, needs which to... Is, it's just a very well-respected polling yeah, company, that's, that's and that's a very, terrible question. Very shoddy, isn't it? Very, very shoddy work. Very shoddy question. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, we don't really bag Hindus that much. They sort of fly Give under us the... time. Yeah. We're about to give them a, a go here. Sure. Um, news in um, from, um, from Nepal. A three-year-old girl in Nepal has been anointed a living goddess Mm. by Hindu priests. On the face of it, that might sound all right, 12th man. Problem is, it's a mantle that requires she be removed to a temple palace in Kathmandu where she must remain until puberty. Uh, She was among four final contestants taken from the Shakya clan... As the religious idol known as Kamari, she will now be allowed to leave the temple just 13 times a year for religious celebrations. Mm. We're, gonna, we're locking up a three-year-old girl in a temple. She's effectively a prisoner. The girl's father said, I had mixed feelings. My daughter has become the Kamari and it is a good thing. But there is also sadness because she will be separated from us. Oh, she's, a, she's a slave to the religion. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How did they choose her? I know you're asking, 12th man. I'm asking. Hmm. The girl was chosen after meeting a number of strict criteria, namely having an unblemished body, a chest like a lion and thighs like a deer. 
After passing the initial test, she then proved her bravery by failing to cry during the ritual sacrifice of a buffalo. Maybe she just likes barbecues. Who knows? In the past, Hindu priests performed animal sacrifices at initiations involving 108 buffalo goats, chickens, ducks and eggs. However, the number has been curtailed in recent years after a series of protests from animal rights activists. They kill a lot of animals. Well, where are the animal... The animal rights activists have curtailed the number of... looked after the animals. Where where are the people looking after three-year-old girls who are jailed in a temple till they reach puberty? Yeah. Where... That's Hinduism for you. It's a... This is where we had that activist who, who wore a cow mask because she said cows are more protected than women in India. It was quite an effective mm. protest. Yeah. And once again, this is proving the case. Oh, Hinduism is an atrocious su- uh, superstition. Mm. This girl is one of a pair of twins, so she's going to be separated from her twin. Well, she's not going to have a life of her own at all, is she? Let's face it. She can leave the temple 13 times a year and mm. only... You know, to participate in religious observances. Until she, life, until she reaches puberty, then... And then what happens? Like 12-year-old Martine Shakya, who was the old Kumari, uh, she left the Temple Palace by a side door after the younger girl took the throne. Oh, that's it. It's just until that's, she reaches puberty? That's it. Oh, well, could be worse. Could be for life. God. Yeah, look... Mm. I, I I visited Nepal several years ago, mm. about four years ago, four or five years ago. I I um, took a cable car up to a mountain top temple, uh, and uh, was quite interested when I got up there. There was a long line of people lining up to have their animal sacrifice blessed by a priest. <laughs> And there were a few cattle there, but mainly, you know, mainly it was goats and chickens. They kill a lot of animals, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> you know, in America, there's some crazy religious preachers and nutters over there. No, get away. But we've got, we've got the same thing happening here. Like, this wouldn't have happened 30, 40 years ago. Outspoken Anglican priest... Rod Bauer has courted controversy by labelling Immigration Minister Peter Dutton a sodomite. What? In a social media post. A sodomite? Yes. That has attracted thousands of shares and divided the religious community. So on one of these, you know, one of these billboards that churches have outside, he's got Dutton is a sodomite. Seriously? On the billboard. Apparently he only did it for social media. Like I think he's taken a photo posted on social media, but the actual physical sign didn't have that for very long. Anyway. It's a bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, it's... Well, talk man, be careful here with your prejudice. Before we go on, uh, so that's the Gosford... uh, Oh, is that the famous Gosford Anglican Church? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 that's it. Now, Assistant Archbishop of Melbourne took umbrage at the post, labelling a very labelling it a very personal slur on a government minister. What do you reckon? I agree. It's pretty personal calling him a sodomite. Well isn't it? What's wrong with being a sodomite? 
Well, it's saying that he participates in sodomy, which, of course, is perfectly legal these days. But but maybe he isn't a sodomite. Well, here's my point. Is it wrong to call him a sodomite? Uh, well, not if he is a sodomite. Like no. I, I can't imagine the Anglican priest of Gosford would actually know intimately oh, so whether he is or not. The Anglican priest is, um, has been delving into his personal life. No, and no found I'm, that I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that. But a sodomite. The, the priest himself says it's got nothing to do with homosexuality. It's about a lack of hospitality. Nah, but come on. Any definition that you look up on the dictionaries will say sodomite, a person who engages in anal intercourse. That's what it means, yeah. usually. So, 12th man, I'll put it to you again. The Anglican Archbishop says uh, he took umbrage at the post, labelling it a very personal slur on a government minister. Oh, I, I think... So it shouldn't be counted as a slur. I think the, Anglican, the assistant archbishop has slurred sodomites. Yeah. by suggesting that being calling somebody a sodomite is a slur. People can be loud and proud sodomites. And they are. Nothing wrong with it. No. Perfectly acceptable yeah. behaviour. This Anglican Archbishop should be apologising to sodomites for suggesting that the term is a slur on yeah, people. I take your point. Have I convinced you on that one? You have, pretty easily. Wow. Knocks that one up. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be embarrassing the, down the track because I'm going to have to admit I didn't convince you on gay bakers, but I convinced yeah, you on look, sodomy. You know, I just realised it, 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 it's the residual, you know, indoctrination that I got at Sunday school as a child. You know, because so- sodomites were considered bad people. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Here I'm, we go. I feel slightly reformed. Here we go. The iron fist and the velvet glove. Where you know. Making progress. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Dear listener, I'm impressed. If you're still with us at this point, you are a true believer. Good on you. Incredible stamina. You are. <laughs> we will be back at some stage. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.